Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week, we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? It's every industry's dream to have a young and passionate people coming through the ranks, the beef industry being no exception. Today's guest is one of those gems that the cattle industry is lucky to have and has a terrific story to boot. Charlie Perry is the manager of Trent Bridge Wagyu at Aberfoyle in New South Wales. They are a family-owned and operated Wagyu stud and they are the very definition of a global business. Hello, Charlie. G'day, Jane. Thanks for having me on. No worries. It's a... from all reports, this is going to be a bit of a treat. So, um, <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that very <laughs> kind introduction. I appreciate no, it. No, that's fine. No, I just, you know, start at the beginning. Um, who are you and where are you from? But I understand that um, your parents started the Wagyu Stud down um, in New South Wales. Yeah, they did. Um, Mum and Dad have been here for over 40 years now and... Um, yeah, I, I was born here, and the farm's gone through multiple evolutions in the in the last forty years. I guess we, um, when I was born, we had Herefords and um, and crossbred sheep, and then into super fine wool sheep, and from one thing to another, as market forces changed and, mm. and conditions changed, but. Um, what sort of um, drove my, um, my parents into um, more of a the, the Wagyu program was we'd gone through a terrible time with uh, foot rot where we tried to um, get it out of the herd for multiple years and then essentially had to sell down and, and um, put down quite a lot of our sheep, which was quite a hard time during the 90s, especially in the dry period. And Absolutely. Mum and Dad moved into doing contract embryo work where they developed a really good skill set about taking other feedstock producers high-value embryos, putting them in the cows and then turning them out as embryos. And um, one thing sort of led to another and they started actually eating some Wagyu beef and Dad, being a big foodie, just thought this is a product we've got to get into. So about 20 years ago, we sort of started putting our own embryos and slowly we've we've grown the herd since then. Wow. And I understand that you didn't leave school and go home (laughs) immediately. You've had a a first career. Yeah, well, I think... um, Part of it may be a bit of a reaction to, you know, things like a, a pretty crippling disease in, in our sheep herd and some tough years that dad was always quite firm with myself and my brother, who, who's not in the business, um, that he really encouraged us, that he wanted us to go and demonstrate that we could have a, um, a career and generate an income outside of the actual farm. We were always very welcome to come home, but that was his sort of strong advice to us is that we actually went and did something a little bit different first. So I um, actually studied um, in Sydney and then had a sort of, sort of eight, ten-year career doing different sort of corporate advisory works sort of mainly around management consulting and um, large infrastructure transactions, which is sort of what I spent the last couple of years doing when I was um, when I was in Sydney. And, um, you know, it was a fantastic experience. I, I, funnily enough, I, um, I spent the last 18 months to two years working down there on um, the Australian submarine acquisition where my firm was acting as the commercial advisor. And so I have an unusual and very detailed knowledge of submarines, which is incredibly useful as a cattle breeder. I was going to say that that translated very well, didn't it? Yeah. To one minute, you know, acquiring submarines, the next minute embryos. Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a funny situation. I I think it almost drove Dad mad for the 
15 years I was away from home or whatever, I'd still call him at 7 o'clock every morning and discuss what he was up to that day or how the heifers were looking and how carving was going. So I felt always really connected to the business. And when the sort of timing seemed right to come back, I was um, really excited to make that move. But I think, um, you know, I kind of feel lucky that I've I've got to see what a, another career looks like because it just makes me feel so lucky to work in in beef and in ag now. You know, I was thinking about this the other day when I was chatting to someone on a Friday night and we are having a couple of beers and all we were doing was talking about beef and grass and soil. <laughs> and I made the comment that never once after I finished work on a Friday night did I want to talk about work. You know, it was sort yeah. of the thing that we did and then we just left there. But, you know, agriculture and beef, it's, oh, I think it's more than just something we do to nine to five. It's sort of an absolute passion. And I just feel so lucky I get to get up every day and work in something I feel like that with. Well, and I guess that that's the, the idea you're getting at is it's not actually work when you live and breathe it and love it that much. There's not really a, a cut-off point. No, absolutely not, which I think um, has its um, downsides because, you know, we have many ups and downs in ag and when it's tougher, I guess I guess you feel that it's hard to, harder to switch off. But, um, you know, I guess my sort of vague, long-winded point is that it was nice to see what another career path looked like and it really makes me appreciate being able to do what I do. Oh, absolutely. And there's always skills that um, that carry over and, you know, they pop up in unusual circumstances. But, you know, agriculture isn't all plain sailing, as you just alluded to, too. There are terrific highs and they are tremendous lows. And so you would have experienced quite a few of them over the years. Yeah, I, I really had. Um, I mean, I've only been home for five years, Jane, and I came home in, in 15, 16 and 17. Our commodity, sort of F1 Wagyu beef and selling Wagyu bulls, was going through sort of a 40-year high, or like a forever high. Like it was just never easy to make money in those couple of years mm. than it had been in certainly my parents' and grandparents' generation. We were, were having a great time and then... You know, as agriculture can do, it's, it's a great level. You can be up one minute mm. and run into a next challenge, you know, the next minute. And, um, you know, for a, a lot of people, you know, in Queensland and New South Wales and Vic, like, um, we had that terrible 2018 and 19 drought where I think in 19 we got half the rainfall of our worst year in 100 years. So, you know, it was, it was quite a trying time and we moved from that into, um, sort of the worst bushfires in 100 years and ironically I um, we just bought a farm a couple of weeks before the fire and it was burning and I was around there with the bushfire brigade and they're like how do you get to the boundary I was like I don't know I haven't oh been gosh, there yet so yeah. that wasn't the, the best time to, um, acquisition right. but um, we sort of laugh about it now and then enough you know, times passed so, it's certainly yeah, but, not funny at the time yeah but so quickly it can change like we were just about out of water and then it rained and things turned around and, you know, now the sort of current challenge is um, obviously everyone's dealing with COVID-19 in different ways, but, you know, we supply a, a luxury product which 99% goes into food services, which is a bit challenging trying to sell meat when um, when just about every restaurant in the world has been shut down. But to be fair, it hasn't been as impacted as, as much as I thought, but um yeah, it, it's funny. It's um, there, there's certainly some challenges, but I think everyone has them, and um, it certainly developed some resilience just to take it day by day. But we were very lucky in our community. We had a lot of friends who were very open at talking about how 
we were trying to solve different problems, which was a huge support about managing through it. It's a terrific community when you can tap into it. Now, I realise that, you know, you said before that you've had a number of different operations out at your place over the years, but I guess in the time that you've been home, you're operating on that high-end Wagyu, uh, not a huge herd from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, how does that differ from, say, some of the other beef operations around the country, that sort of high-end Wagyu meat? Yeah, so we've got um, maybe about... Um, of, by Queensland standards, we're practically hobby farmers, I would say. But we've <laughs> about, about a 900 cow herd and about four or 500 full blood stud animals and, and then a commercial Angus herd. Um, and where our, like, there's sort of four segments to our business model. Um, one is we produce full blood seed stock um, sort of animals, so bulls, which go into other um, commercial operations, which produce sort of. F1 meat or other full blood meat producers. Um, we've also got a, a part of the operation where we sell, um, we put our own bulls over Angus cows, which produces a, an F1, a, a first cross Angus Wagyu product, which is, um, it goes into the JBS program. We deal with Jason Carswell there for many years, has been a great supporter of ours, and then they're, they're fed and sold into, uh, largely into Asia, into that sort of high grade luxury beef. Mm-hmm. And then um, we've also um, got an element to our business, which is genetic sales and um, in terms of semen and embryos. And that's been a really exciting development over the last couple of years where as we've traced animals through the supply chain, some animals are literally tens of thousands of dollars more valuable than other animals because of the production of their progeny. And so identifying those animals which are much more productive and efficient and have a higher carcass attribute is a really exciting part of our business. And then, um, you know, putting the, that genetic material into other, um, into other farms has been um, something we've been focusing over the last couple of years. Now, you, you basically just answered my next question, but about the fact that you, your business really operates globally, isn't it? That most of what you're producing is heading overseas. Yeah, so... Um, I would say about 90% of um, Wagyu beef ends up overseas um, with a very high um, reliance on the Asian market, um, Korea, Hong Kong, um, China, for example. And why is that? Is it just Australian consumers haven't cottoned onto it or we're too tight to pay as much as Asia? or why? Do- One of it is... Um, there's just a much higher population, there's a much greater population there and in Dubai or in America. So there's just statistically more rich people who can go and buy an expensive steak. The market's just bigger. But also I think um, they eat the meat a little bit differently. So a Wagyu, like a, a Marble Score 9 um, Wagyu steak, you don't want to sit down and eat it like a traditional, mm. you know, Angus or um, British bread British bread item because the marble is too too high. So, mm. you know, in Japan and Korea, they actually eat the meat. You know, they might have 100 grams of meat in their dish, which their eating habits are, are quite different to, um, to ours in Australia. But it's certainly um, that sort of Wagyu cross um, meat, Certainly has a, a place in Australia and has some good, um, some, some quite a high volume of demand. It's just a sort of reality that more of it goes overseas. Well, I have a brother-in-law in Japan who keeps telling us he's hanging out for a decent steak. Um, so maybe maybe he's just 
we could send a rump or something yeah, over in the yeah, next exactly. shipment if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's that's a whole different, um, not a way of doing business, that's not the right way to put it, but um, what was it like coming home and then sort of having to, to pick up, because this is very relationship-based too with what you're doing. Yeah, it is, and I think um, that's one of the things I um, enjoy so much about our businesses. You know, I was chatting to a bloke from Northern Ireland this morning who's um, using our semen and selling our semen, and a bloke from America in Florida yesterday who's using our um, semen, and um, I'm doing a joint venture with a bloke from South Africa using some, some different genetic material. Gosh. And, um, you know, and, and also, like, I, I love working with our local customers and sort of understanding the market better and, and, and helping them sort of, and us sort of achieve our, our business goals. And I think the thing with, it, with our product is it's, it's just servicing a market. It's no better or worse than any other beef, you know. It's mm. just what we do is we produce um, a high-value product with a high cost of production for a certain segment. I mean, I love eating it, and that's one of the things I love most about breeding our product is when you have friends come to stay and they eat that meat for the first time, it can be quite a, you know, a startling experience. And I get a huge amount of satisfaction in that, but, you know, it's, it's just, it's servicing a market and I love doing it, but, you know, there's an awful lot of black Angus cattle in our area and they have, you know, a really strong place in our more domestic market and also globally. So mm. it's, um yeah, it's just kind of, it's our business and it's not better or worse than other businesses. It's just kind of where we ended up and I, yeah. I think it's a great product and I think we're lucky to be involved in it. Well, look, I'm going to ask you about how this translates to the Beef Expo or Beef 21, which is why we're talking today. But how does that, you know, that relationship and that global marketing marry in with, with an event like Beef? Well, I think um, why Beef is such an amazing product and program is it just has such a global reach and an ability to genuinely position Australia as a global thought leader in beef and all that entails from research, you know, genetics, production, all, all of those elements. So I think, um, you know, actually I'm um, on the, the board of the Australian Wagyu Association and every year that beef happens, we try and make sure that we organise our conference either at the start or end of beef because we know that we can get on the the, um, the tails of beef and we'll get a huge national contingent who'll come over and try and take a Wagyu conference on because they're already going to beef. So I've seen firsthand just the, just the, the pull that it has globally. Um, and I think the reason people come is because it's been cons- consistently demonstrated it's worth the time and effort. Well, you're on the symposium committee. I re- I understand you were recruited um, over dinner for the symposium committee. Yeah, <laughs> I'm lucky that we've had a, a great um, new addition to the community over the last couple of years. Jess Webb, who's on the um, the board of the uh, of Beef, um, was over at dinner and recruited me onto the symposium, which is, I guess, a bit of a subcommittee. And what we're doing is trying to create a program which... Um, will run at the start of beef and really sets a tone about how we want people to be thinking about the week. So what we've been thinking about for the upcoming beef is Australia's role in a leadership sense around um, 
sometimes we think we can be too passive as an industry and we are dictated about how the industry looks and feels by those external to it. But also we think that beef is, you know, people in the beef industry are incredibly resilient and, in, and, and great leaders. And I think what we're trying to do is develop a program which brings in different leaders in different industries to really challenge how we're thinking, inspire us to keep doing what we're doing well, and maybe improve where, where we're weak. And I think um, the, the lineup of speakers, which is not yet confirmed, but it's sort of 80% confirmed, is really, really exciting and would stack up on a global stage anywhere in terms of the quality of the speakers we've got. So... Um, Sounds like you're getting a lot in there, though. That's like a whole week on its own, just a couple of subjects that you brushed over. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I think um, I think it's 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 pretty exciting. And underneath the symposium, or aside to that, is um, some different seminars which we're organising, where we're trying to um, you know, think about some of the myths around beef from you know uh, sustainability or carbon perspective or you know, animal welfare and really deal with them and go, you know, is it fair how the external environment necessarily um, defines that issue? Um, if it's not fair and accurate, what are we doing about it? And really trying to encourage us all to take some real ownership about our industry. And be proactive, I guess. So is that... Yeah, exactly. How does that look for you then? With your, you know, I, I realise I've just put you on the spot a bit, but, you know, if, if you would... Um, ideally like our industry to be more proactive in some of those areas. How would that look for you? What would you want people to be doing? Well, I think part of it is just being armed with the information and being really comfortable and confident with the facts because, um, you know, I was having a conversation with some friends who'd come up from Sydney on the weekend and they'd recently watched the film, the Netflix production Game Changers, which is, you know aggressively pushing the, um, the the shortcomings of beef and very actively pushing sort of plant-based proteins and things like that. You know, little do we know, at no point is it disclosed, the producer of that film has his own, um, you know, protein-based meat company. I mean, you know, mm. um, plant-based meat company. And just, just hearing them repeat what they'd learned, it just sort of had no... Um, no bearing in reality to my, to my mind, you know, and I think we need all our farmers to be like just armed with the knowledge and the facts that we can actually talk about with reason, with, you know, with coherently and practically yeah. and confidence that, that, you know, done well, like beef can actually have a really positive contribution from a carbon perspective, you know, um, there's, you know, whether it's talking about live export or anything like that, there's, um, there's, there's ways in which I think um, a, a sort of external media has really tried to define our industry, mm. which I think... Without I'm, much rigour, like, as you, you know, you just mentioned that program, that um, there doesn't seem to ever be any effort to, well, no, that's on broad brush strokes, but effort to um, give the other side or at least give some context to some of the information they're putting out. Yeah, no, and I think I'm, um, you know, not not to go down the rabbit hole too much. I yeah, no, I'm not, sorry. I, I really <laughs> um, get offended when people think we sort of we're abusers of the um, 
of the land. Like no one cares more about the quality of the land and the environment than than we do because we depend on it so much. And I think it's one of the fundamental principles just about every farm operates on is they want to leave the land better than they found it. So um I think um, there, there's some room for improvement there, no doubt. <laughs> now, I want to go back to the to your high-value product and the supply chain because um, genetic feedback uh, yeah. being absolutely critical to what you do. And I think, you know, as, as the industry evolves and we have more access to data and ag tech and, and management um, uh, improvements, how, how does that translate to the actual farm gate? Well, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I think what's interesting about the Wagyu supply chain is because it's such an expensive supply chain, we almost have no choice but to define those animals which are performing well and those animals which are not, mm-hmm. and then define their pedigree and their genetics and um, you know, invest more heavily in the, the animals that are performing well, and invest more, and, and, and you know, get rid of the animals that are not. Not to be, you know, too in the weeds, but broadly, when an, a, a, a wagyu animal is killed, for every additional marble score, depending on the market, that might be seven hundred and fifty dollars more. So if I'm feeding an F1 Angus wagyu product and it marble scores three, that processor and producer has just done, you know, a thousand bucks on it or something like that. They've lost significant amount of money from, from that. And from an economic and a sustainability perspective, they should just be feeding an Angus for a hundred days as opposed to that Wagyu animal for 400 days. Like that's mm. just a waste of time, resources and money. Mm. So what we need to be doing is having absolute traceability through our supply chain to identify those animals who are converting feed well, having the appropriate carcass traits that the market wants, and then taking that information back and investing in it. Because that's the only way that we're going to improve. And, you know, that's how the Wagyu EBVs are set up to to capture and record that information and then, you know, value those animals who have performed well more highly. And you're talking about the Wagyu breed specifically, but that kind of um, knowledge and, and practice would translate broadly across all of Australia's beef production? Well, I think, um, well, I completely agree because the, the reality is, is that Australia is a very expensive place to do business and we can't really compete globally on commodity beef. You know, Argentina, Brazil, Indian buffalo, you know, if, if those markets are open to just, you know, commodity grounding beef, like long-term we're going to struggle to compete on a price perspective. So I think, you know, whether you're in Angus or Shorthorn or Brahman or whatever it is, depending on what your product, at some point we need better traceability over the performance of our animals and a higher investment in those animals that are performing better because where I think we have a huge ability to compete, and it's not about, like, you know, I talk about Wagyu, but it's not just about marling, whether it's on your, your MSA grading or whatever it may be. Mm. You know, we've, we've got to use our um, our techno, technological and, you know, ability and um, to, to help drive a high product. You know, I could be wrong, but I think, like, you know, people in the meat processing in Australia are probably getting about 15 times more than in, you know, mm. 
Brazil or Mexico or any of those other environments. So we're constrained by these economic factors, so we have to make sure we're continually competitive by having better products. There's a lot more genomic um programs around and I guess you know EBVs have been around for a while but it, it a lot of them are dependent on people uh, using the data or collecting data to, to make those databases broader and more effective um, when things are when animals are slaughtered what would encourage people to take it up more yeah that's it's a, a really good question and I think ultimately this is going to have to be a whole of supply chain approach where we need to reward in some way the investment of people um, to to have traceability over their herd's performance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying you have to DNA verify every carcass that you produce, but potentially if you know the sire line or the dam line mm-hmm. and you can trace that back through your system using your... Um, um, your NLIS tags and have some kind of traceability over what animals, then you'll find that some animals are performing better and some animals are not. But then even just the, like the NLIS tags, when they came in, it was such a controversial thing for the whole industry and there were still, still people opposed to that and that's quite a baseline kind of concept. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't sort of speak to those views, but I think, um, and this is something where I think, you know, even supply chains in the more... I mean, I live in the northern Tablelands, but I know according, you know, everything south of Queensland, but, you know, in our sort of southern beef production systems, so from the, you know, New South Wales down to Victoria, I, I know um, often um, producers are struggling to get feedback from processors, which just, um, it, it baffles me because surely they need to be helping you know, there's a commercial return for them to be producing, whether they're killing shorthorns or Herefords or Angus, to be identifying animals that are producing high carcass attributes. Mm. You know, maybe um, they haven't found a way where it's commercial to improve that traceability, but I, I doubt it. And, and and to start with, to start with, you could just, um, if, if we could improve the feedback loop of you know, and I'm talking specifically about people growing feeder steers, putting them in a feed um, in a feed lot, and then killing them, which is a big part of the business in the south. Mm. Um, if we could just improve the traceability so that people got their feedback sheets for how, how those animals would kill, that would be a huge start. Because Do you think people read their feedback sheets well? I, I don't know. I'm not. I, sure. I, I feel like there's, this is one of the, the little issues that come up. I'm not convinced that everyone actually understands their feedback sheets. So what do, you, what do your processes say when, um, when you've had this conversation with them? You know, I, I might look at different things regarding our performance to, mm. to other processes, but I'm very interested in, um, you know, carcass weight, eye muscle area, intramuscular fat, um, average daily grain, you know, induction weight, egg um, or and days on feed. Mm. They're absolutely key metrics of my mm. business, and it's normally the most nervous time for me every year is when I get my feedback from you know my last year's crop of weaners because that's when we we get the feedback about you know are our genetics moving in the right or wrong direction, which is you know, more broadly like probably one of the things most attractive to me about breeding cattle. It's, like test cricket, you've got to have a lot of patience. You know, it takes yeah. generations and generations to slowly, you know, improve your cattle. But 
you know, we're carving here at the moment and there's nothing more satisfying than going around and grabbing your stud calves and looking at them and looking at the, <laughs> the pedigree and the generational yeah. improvement that you've got. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back to, you know, when your friends from Sydney come up um, and I imagine not a, there'd be a, quite a few that wouldn't have had the background you have, what are you showing them? What What's their sort of light bulb moment when you're taking them around and, and showing them what you're doing? Well, as long as I get them before I've bored them to sleep, you know. <laughs> I'm sure I had it's someone not the in the case. car on Saturday. I was like, would you like the short tour and the long tour? And I'm like, well, the short tour is six hours. And oh, all I will do <laughs> is talk to you about grass species, soil types, and um, pedigrees. No, but no, it will I, I end with a wag you, you know, dinner. So you can't complain, <laughs> yeah, exactly. okay? Let me get on my soapbox and let me go. <laughs> no, I think. Um, it's really important, I think, to show people from a um, um, a more metropolitan background, you know, how we think about food production. And I think they go away, I hope, you know, impressed by how seriously we take it and how passionate we are about it. Mm. Like, you know, you might go down to your local Coles and buy a 200-gram steak and think nothing about the effort and the thought and the the passion that's gone into that and we're only one segment of the supply chain and I really hope that's how they think about it but you know I had a a friend who was a a doctor here on the weekend and they were so interested because we're just carving down some IVF calves which is just amazing technology to me that Mm. we've got these calves which were essentially grown in a test tube in Brisbane mm. and then rushed down here and implanted in cows and then um, and then carving. So we've got, you know, from one straw of semen, about 30 different calves from about 18 wow. different cows. Mm. Um, you know, I was lucky I didn't have to pay for the semen because the last time it traded, it went for a world record $55,000 or something oh like that. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. <laughs> Deep pockets, yes. Yeah, but no, I certainly, I, I didn't buy it. I was yeah. in a joint venture with someone who had acquired it um, <laughs> before Good that. Good friends, but, see, networking. Networking, Charlie, this is how it happens. <laughs> but, but IVF, it's just an amazing way in which it can improve the genetic you know, profile of your herd very, very quickly. So what did your doctor friend think of that then? Oh, they loved it. Although I've got to admit, the detail they go into in assessing the heifers for carving is like seven oh four slight presentation. I was like, "Is the thing carved or not?" <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Going back to Beef Australia because we're running out of time, but um, we could, we could talk about genetics all day by the sounds of it, Charlie. But we're here for Beef Twenty One, and I re- we've touched on the symposium. What else are you doing that week, or is it all all business? What are you looking forward to? Oh, I just think it's it's a fantastic to, um, opportunity to to catch up with you know different people in the industry and across the supply chain, and I think there's just you know so many different you know thought leaders who are going to be on on um, you know on the stage there. But I was chatting to my fiance about it last night, and she's um you know a sort of Queensland background, and she's just we're talking about the opportunity to to catch up with. You know, it's a real place where people go to meet and catch up. Yeah, and, it's, oh, it's very social. Like there is certainly the educational side of things and that real showcase of innovation, but and information. A good time as it well. is a pretty good time. But take yeah, take good walking shoes. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I know, absolutely, it is. Um, and I'm 
I'm I'm really really excited about about getting up there and um, seeing what's in store, but also just catching up with people and ha- having a beer and um, hopefully talking about the good season that's in front of us. <laughs> Wouldn't that be terrific? Uh, yeah. And I guess we've asked. Well, I have asked everyone that's come on the podcast this same question. You've already told me that you, you your favourite is a wagyu steak, and you must have it fairly often. But if you're not, what's your favourite Tuesday dinner? Like, what's your favourite cut on just an average, no show poniness? What are you having? Oh, we had Osabuku on uh, Tuesday with, like, you know, it was snowing here in the New England <laughs> and with, like, a good mashed potato and this is a red wine jus and it was absolutely sensational, just fell off the bone. But, um, you know, my... um. My old man, while just absolutely loves cooking, you know, and it's sort of rubbed off on me. He thinks he's a terrible farmer because most farmers wake up in the morning and think, oh, I've got to, you know, move the heifers or check the water. He thinks up, he wakes up in the morning and goes, what do I need to get out of the freezer tonight, tonight to defrost? So, a man um, after my own heart. That's yeah. <laughs> Tell so, him if um, he would like to sample some some Northern Australian cattle that he may come up and do <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. and help out here for a while. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I appreciate you, you you chatting to me, Jane, and I um I'm, I I've appreciated the opportunity to be involved in Beef Australia. There's been some fantastic people I've met already through the symposiums and really, really passionate people, great advocates for the um, for the industry. So I'm just lucky to be included in it. Oh, no, absolutely. Thank you so much, Charlie, um, for your time. And we will look forward to seeing you at Beef 21. Take it easy. Thanks, Jane. Thanks. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.